1: I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy New Year's indeed. Good Friday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with Julia Borston and Frank Hall. And today, the Nasdaq's in the red about to close out its worst year since 2008, but is a comeback ahead. We'll discuss where to buy the dip heading into the new year. Plus, VR, the metaverse, and AI are on the rise. We'll look at how you can capitalize on big tech's top trends. And later... It has certainly been a rough year for crypto. So is 2022 its finale or could there be opportunity ahead? But we will start with the markets on this last trading day of the year. Historically, the year following a down year, tons to favor the worst performing sectors, none more worse performing than tech in 2022. So is a strong 23 ahead? Let's bring in our Bob Pisani. Bob, this all has to do with extraordinary events, right? And whether we think that Interest rate hikes, 2023. That's going to be something extraordinary.
0: Yeah, higher for longer. The Russian invasion, the lingering effects of COVID. These are three extraordinary events that may and likely will spill over into 2023. But here's something that's important: down years are fairly unusual. There's the, the Nasdaq, and of course we're seeing big down years in the Nasdaq, about 30%. Uh, S&P 500. The only suspense is whether it's going to be down 20% or not. But again, this is mostly due to what we're seeing in the growth areas of technology and communication services. The important thing, and here's something that's very interesting. In down years, the behavior of sectors in the following year is a little different than when you have up years. In, when, when you have an up year, the sectors that really tend to outperform tend to outperform in the following year. In other words, you let your winners ride. But when you have a down year, it's a little bit different. You following down years, the worst performing sectors from the prior year tend to outperform. So let's just qu- quickly look at this. The sectors that were the best performers this year, everybody knows it's energy, but it's also these what we call the value sectors, utilities, consumer staples, and even healthcare stocks. They have had relative outperformance this year. Remember, the SP is down 20% this year. What's really done poorly, and this gets to this performance for next year, uh, Deirdre, is The growth areas that we cover so much, you guys cover so much uh, on this hour, communication services, discretionary real estate and technology. They tend in down years, the worst performing sectors tend to outperform a little bit better. And that, Deirdre, would argue that maybe technology is not going to have another underperforming year in 2023. Deirdre.
2: Hey, Bob, I'm going to take it from here. You know, you're you're kind of jumping off at the point I wanted to ask you about. I mean, we're talking about high growth tech, especially the Arc Innovation ETF and those other high growth names. A lot of them have been dismissed basically as junk tech. What's your take specifically on that ETF that we focused on so much in the beginning of this year? But in general, high growth tech, things like, you know, autonomous driving, uh, EVs.
0: Kathy Wood was never wrong. Philosophically, she has always been directionally correct disruptive technology is the future. These are the companies that tend to do well in the long term. Her misfortune happened to come at the exact moment prior to COVID when that kind of investing and growth investing was huge. And so it wasn't a question of whether she was right about companies. The question is, what's the right price to pay for these companies? In a rising interest rate environment, many of the companies she favored make little or no money. In a rising interest rate environment, those companies historically always get hit. So philosophically correct, correct, misfortune, a bit of difficult timing uh, for her. And the question is for these companies with interest rates continuing to be high, what's the right price to pay for companies that make little or no money right now?
3: It's always a question of valuation, Bob. Thanks so much and happy new year.
0: Okay. Happy New Year to you. So
3: if tech is poised for a comeback next year, how should you be positioned? Our next guest likes Alphabet, Fleetcore in payments and his long media names like Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery. Optimize Advisors, CIO and CNBC contributor Mike Co joins us now. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. I understand that a lot of these names that are your topics have seen a massive sell off this year. But beyond just that decline in valuations, what is your overall thesis going into next year?
4: Yeah, I I I think my thesis is probably fairly broadly shared. I think that uh, the inflation problem is going to be a fairly persistent one. And if monetary policymakers do their job, they're going to have to maintain higher rates for a longer period of time, I think, than uh, optimists for equities are inclined to believe. And if that's true, uh, then long-duration equities, that's kind of what Bob Pisani was just talking about there. You know, the companies that aren't making any money now, the kind of companies that that uh, Kathy Wood favors are typically those where you're making a big bet well into the future I think you want to favor companies that are are making money now have free cash flow that's important so you're not borrowing uh, at higher capital costs so I think that's going to favor businesses that are making money right now some of the companies that you have up on the screen right now that I do happen to own names like Paramount and Warner Brothers these companies admittedly have some operational problems but I have a feeling that they're going to get some pressure from shareholders and start to turn that story around a little bit. And some of those other companies are trading at actually quite attractive multiples, big discounts to the market right now.
3: Yeah. Interesting. I I have to press a little bit on those media picks because I noted that, you know, Paramount has massive short interest and and high debt. And you say that Warner Brothers Discovery needs an activist. I'm curious what you think is going to come from not just those two companies, but the rest of the media sector and whether you think there could be some consolidation, which is something we've been talking about this week, whether there could be some consolidation despite um, concern about the regulatory environment.
4: Yeah, so with respect to uh, consolidation, I think a lot of people are speculating that one of the reasons uh, that Berkshire Hathaway has taken a good-sized chunk in Paramount uh, has to do with exactly that. I think that is a more digestible-sized company than Warner Brothers is. Warner Brothers does have some good things going for it, like HBO Max, but uh, they've had some real missteps, I think, in terms of of the content that they've created over the course of the last year, Um, some big investments and, and things that never even made it out. Uh, and I think that's going to put some pressure on management to focus on what they're supposed to be doing, which is is entertaining their customers. And then mm-hmm. those high debt levels also, uh, there is a potential benefit there, which is that that creates more leverage to the equity if they do start to see a positive turnaround. So Paramount, I think, uh, there's some speculation the company's just gotten very cheap. Um, you know, their, their strategic roadmap doesn't make them super attractive uh, because they are trying to make long-term investments. And so for those that are thinking about them as a buyout, uh, that's a little bit of a deterrent, but it is certainly a discount. Warner Brothers has just also gotten exceptionally cheap. As a spin out, as most of you will know uh, from T was basically a dividend Mm -hmm. stub. Uh, That's one of the reasons that I own it because I also own AT&T. And that brings up something else, which is that if you have a situation where you're going to have higher rates, uh, then companies like AT&T and Verizon can potentially benefit because, you know, these are companies that Uh, they are making some money right now. They do have positive free cash flow and they're paying relatively attractive dividends. AT&T cut their dividend before, you know, both of them are are paying dividends of over 6% right now, which, you know, some could say is indicative that some people don't believe they can persist, but both dividends are pretty well covered. Uh, And AT&T, you know, down very small on the year on a price basis, but net of the dividends actually returned 5% total return for the year. So it's actually one of the year's winners.
1: We're going to talk more dividends in a moment with uh, Dow, the dogs of the Dow. But, Mike, let me ask you more broadly, are there any areas of tech, unprofitable tech, that you think might be worth the risk next year, whether that be sort of secular trends or just valuations coming down so much?
4: Well, that, you know, for a company that doesn't make uh, any money, the valuation question a little bit hard to answer, right? But there are some companies, uh, you know, I'm thinking about uh, – you know the business to business a digital payment processing company fleet for example this is a technology company that's been growing very uh, attractively over several years you know i think this is a company that is quite attractive at this level right now uh you know on a forward basis i think the street actually thinks this thing is trading somewhere between 10 11 times forward earnings but let's assume that you know business to business payments are actually going to decline in a recessionary environment i subscribe to that idea but even so if you have no growth in this company year over year, it's still probably trading around 14 times earnings, assuming that there's no growth relative to the very high growth that I think a lot of the street is still forecasting. Uh, you know, this is I think a pretty good place to be. Um, you know, this is one of those situations too where you have to bear in mind that. Uh, you know, they get a percentage, essentially, of the transactions. So as the volume of transactions drops, which you might expect in a recessionary environment, that can hurt uh, that top line. Of course, they they have a lot of exposure to fuel, too. So if fuel prices go down as a percentage, that, too, can hit the revenues. But still, uh, at, you know, maybe 10 times uh, the forward number, which I'm going to discount 13 times, I think this one's attractive. Hey Mike, Frank Collin here. Happy holidays by the way. Um, You took the
2: words out of my my mouth about Fleet Corps. That's a company actually in my space. They provide cards for supply chain companies, trucking companies. But I also want to ask you about streaming. Um, You're very long on two streaming companies. Aren't we in the very early innings of streaming? We still have some mega sports skills to be sorted out and also just the distribution of movies to be sorted out, maybe even consolidation. Why are you so long on those two names?
4: Yeah, I mean, one of it is, you know, when I'm looking at something like Warner Brothers, frankly, uh, my and, you know, Paramount, too, I mean, these are really kind of turnaround stories. Uh, I agree with you. This is, this is a tough spot. I mean, it's getting to be very crowded right now. Uh, I think even names like Netflix on the streaming side, you know, they probably have gotten pretty close to peak subs would be my guess, although that company is not – you know, at a ludicrous valuation anymore. You know, it was always traded as a growth stock right now. Not so much. One of the reasons I'm not as interested in it right now is because it's had such a big run off the bottom from earlier this year. Uh, I was long that stock and then ended up peeling off um, a little bit too early, I would admit, uh, to get into some of these more distressed names is what I will call them. Uh, but really, it's it's looking for leverage in the space. And, you know, in Netflix's case, I, I think it's probably best of breed. Uh, but the challenge there is that it's already had such a big runoff bottom. You know, maybe Disney would be another place to play. But I agree with you. It's, it's getting crowded. And uh, who the winners will ultimately be has yet to be decided.
3: Yeah, Mike. And interestingly, one of your other picks, Google just made a big streaming deal for NFL Sunday ticket for YouTube. I wish we could keep talking to you, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us and Happy New Year.
4: Happy New Year.
2: All right, time now to take the temperature and investor sentiment going into the new year. We have some insight from CNBC's quarterly stock survey. Growth stocks still very much out of favor heading into 2023 with just 28% preferring them to value plays. But for those looking to invest in those high flyers, Amazon and Alphabet are the most popular choices. Netflix and Meta at the bottom of that list. And after this chaotic year for crypto, 81%, they won't even go near it, Julia. We were talking a little bit before the show just about crypto and everything that's gone on this year, just how the perceptions have changed.
3: Yeah, we were talking about crypto. I know we're gonna talk about it more later in this show, but I thought the results of this survey were so interesting because they seem so overall optimistic. I mean, 48% say that they expect a soft landing. 39% say a hard landing in a recession, but 12% say a return to growth. So overall, if you combine soft landing and return to growth, that's more than half address. So I think a little bit more optimism than I would have anticipated yeah. um, after some of the
1: results of this year. I agree with you, Julia. This is a bit more optimistic, especially um, on a soft landing. 48% believe that. I know one fund manager who might argue that A lot of the money managers now haven't lived through all of the previous crises, so maybe overly optimistic? I don't know. We'll see. I also thought the biggest concern for the markets right now, 73% Fed policy, 0% European energy shortage. Um, So that was interesting. Some good insights as we head into 23. Also coming up, predictions for tech in the new year. What's ahead for Sam Bankman-Fried and where to find opportunity in 2023? Tech Check is just getting started.
2: all right. Welcome back to Tech Check. I want to tell you about the dogs of the Dow. This is an investment strategy where you take the top dividend stocks in the Dow at year end and invest in them for the next year. Take a look here behind me. Here's the top five with Verizon at number one with a dividend of 6.8 percent. And then here's the next five of these dogs of the Dow. They include IBM, Cisco and big bank JP Morgan coming at number 10 on this list. All of them with a dividend over 3 percent. So today focusing on the tech sector with Verizon, Intel, and Cisco, you can see all of them trading below the triple Qs and below the market. We're also looking at a little bit of fundamentals, a little bit of technicals based on research from Worth Charting. Let's start with Worth Charting's top pick for 2023 for a dog of the Dow, and that is Verizon. The telecom giant, you can see its 200-day moving average and also its intraday moves for Q4. Uh, The telecom giant making higher lows as we go through the new year. You can see it over here and it's really an uptrend. Verizon also getting an upgrade from Morgan Stanley for its free cash flow generation as its capex spending to ramp up for 5G is expected to wind down. Next dog that we're looking at, that would be Cisco. Uh, another name here we're seeing as a strong holding according to Worth Charting going into the new year. You're seeing some really bullish technical signs. You see the moves here above the 200-day two day moving average here. Also, Cisco entering 2023 with a lot of momentum. Shares up about 18% in Q4. All right, last one, Intel. Worth Charting says the technicals are very bearish here. You see a a peak right around November, right around this area right here, but still below the 200-day moving average. Intel also lowering its current guidance for revenue for the quarter uh, by about a billion dollars and more than 6% from the top end of the range. Now, of course, not a foolproof strategy, but if you did this in 2022, this year, you would have actually outperformed all three indices, Joya. Yeah,
3: it's so interesting because if you look at these stocks within the broader context of what was going on with the sector, um, it sort of tells a slightly different story. Obviously, you're talking about a dividend play here, but if you look at it from more of a sector play, um, I had to just point out Verizon, which is a stock that I cover, you know, really in that that communication space, looking at T-Mobile, T-Mobile is actually a rare stock that is up nearly 20% year to date, and then AT&T, that's a stock that year-to-date is down just Mm -hmm. 1%, so far outperforming the averages. So those are certainly not dividend plays, but interesting to see how those other
1: stocks that are the direct Mm -hmm. correlation to Verizon did outperform this year. So to be a dog of the Dow, you have to be fairly old, right? So it sets up this conversation that we've had over many years of legacy tech names versus the new, buzzier, growthier names like Snowflake. I know a few weeks ago, uh, John and I looked at IBM versus Snowflake. Who would have thought you know a year ago that IBM would have outperformed a buzzy name a darling of silicon valley like snowflake but that's what happened i guess the question for a lot of these a lot of these names i'm thinking IBM in particular something that's always dogged the company is it a value trap right i mean yes it's outperformed over the last year but over the last decade plus it's really done nothing even when it's had a turnaround plan. You've seen a little bit, a glimmer of hope in terms of revenue growth. It's been in the single digits. It hasn't been sustainable. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about this later, but could that playbook work next year? And we know that investors are valuing profits, dividends, overgrowth. So these are sort of prime areas for it. Um, but if you're looking right. for secular growth, I don't know, are these names, they, they may be actually, they may be. There are some interesting turnarounds like the one at IBM.
2: Well, Deidre, I want to credit Worth Charting. That's where I got some of this research from. And they kind of consider a stock like Verizon and IBM is basically a bond. Uh, you know the revenues are going to be stable, but the dividend is what really separates it from other stocks because you know that's going to come in. I mean, an IBM or Verizon, some of these other Dow stocks, you're generally pretty sure they're not going to cut that dividend. So it gives you some certainty about return there. But as you mentioned, you know, when it comes to price action and growth in the company, when it comes Mm -hmm. to an IBM or a lot of these blue chip companies, of course, you're not going to get that rapid growth. You might expect from a Snowflake or a CrowdStrike or a Datadog or some of these high, really growthy names.
3: Yeah. And and I have to point out, though, just to go back to IBM, because this is such an interesting outlier there and an unexpected winner, that, you know, we talk about IBM as a 111-year-old company, but we have to remember that this is a company that did a major acquisition just a couple of years ago with the 2019 acquisition of Red Hat for $34 billion. So sometimes you have these old companies that transform themselves through acquisition. And I think the question going forward is how much more transformation is there
1: in the works or is
3: there potential to do for company that does have such a long history
1: and I I think there are some questions about that acquisition strategy as well right I mean one of the complaints about IBM um, for many years has been questions around financial engineering right and they just recently split up the company Kindrel and now the new IBM and how can you read that I mean that's always been a question too. how much is their AI project actually growing how much revenue is in there they lumped it in with some other stuff um, but I, I, agree with you, Julie. I think that Arvind Krishna, um, has been taking a slightly different strategy, increasing CapEx, um... We'll see. we'll see if that turns out for another year. It'll be exciting ahead. Or, or maybe it will be really boring, because honestly, these are boring names. But that's what the market wants right now.
3: Yeah, the question is, when is boring good? Um, the other thing I have to point out, though, that could be a ding on IBM is this whole Southwest drama that we have all been watching, um, the, the major shutdown of all those shut Southwest flights. There is a Southwest IBM connection. Southwest operated on IBM mainframe hardware. Yeah. There was some press coverage of that. and You have to wonder, Frank, how much that kind of conversation. Um, could ding the fact that this is an old tech company?
2: I mean, you know, I think you guys are making some great points. It's certainly an older tech company. And, uh, you know, Joey, uh, you point out that acquisition of Red Hat, um, kind of a push into hybrid cloud. But right now we are seeing what may be considered a stalling of that cloud transition. And so maybe a lot of companies, they want to turn to an IBM, with, which is a, a multifaceted player. that can offer different services at the same time. As opposed to these uh, specialized cloud names that are really at the top of the stack, that do one particular thing. A lot of them have really struggled because companies more and more are saying, hey, I, I'd like you to do more things for me when I come to you.
1: That was Jim Chanos, by the way, famed short seller talking about IBM's um, potentially outdated mainframe hardware and software that may have a part to play in this whole Southwest saga. He also points out, speaking of acquisitions, Julia, the weather channel which south which was an acquisition i remember um, back when they still did world of watson um, that they touted that said was this you know big ai driver driver had so much information so much data that was going to help air air companies flight companies sort of read the airwaves a little bit better and i don't know it's a big question mark after the last few weeks of travel
3: yeah that was all about ai uh, which of course it continues to be in the forefront well we will continue this conversation um when tech check returns right after this quick quick break
7: ring in the new year by joining cnbc pro invest like a pro in 2023 with a special year-end offer go
2: to cnbc.com slash pro new year or scan this code now
5: Welcome back to Tech Check, everybody. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's what's happening at this hour. Southwest Air is back to its normal flight schedule. Tracking site FlightAware says Southwest has only 41 canceled flights today, about 1% of the total. Southwest stock is also rebounding. It's up another percent today, but still down 6% this week. Shares of Shaw Communications are soaring 10%. Canadian regulators approved Shaw's takeover by Rogers Communications. The $15 billion deal will create Canada's second largest telecom firm. Mortgage rates in 2022 posted their biggest annual rise ever. This despite a modest pullback since November. Freddie Mac says 30-year fixed mortgage rates are finishing the year at 6.42%, more than double the 3.11% at this time last year. And Japan's Prime Minister Kishida rang at the closing bell at the Tokyo Stock Exchange to finish up the year's trading. Kishida says he faces a lot of policy challenges to make sure Japan's economy thrives in the new year. Japanese markets get a longer New Year's holiday than we do. They don't open again until Wednesday. Frank?
2: Yeah, they're doing it right over there, Contessa. (laughs) We should try
5: to push forward something similar, yes.
2: (laughs) All right, happy New Year, Contessa. Great to see you. All right, we've seen all sorts of new products and ripples across the tech landscape from AI, AI-powered essays to new VR headsets and even legs in the metaverse. Joining us now with our expectations for 2023, senior personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal, Joanna Stern. Happy New Year, Joanna. Happy New Year. All right, let's start off with one of your predictions, really focused on the VR, AR space that Meta now has about 90% control of. What's the big prediction? I'm going to use some spooky fingers you can't see. I want you to look in your crystal ball. What do you expect? Um,
7: well, exactly what you said. More of a melding between VR and AR, right? The idea that we can't see anything else around us in our real world with VR, right? We go to a virtual world. With AR, we put things in our real world. And that's something that Meta did last year with the Quest Pro. We expect others to join the space with similar types of headsets this year. First is going to be HTC coming out at CES with a similar type of headset where you'll be able to blend AR and VR. And then the big question mark, and I'm going to put on those spooky fingers and look into the future, is it going to be Apple? Is this going to be the year we see this long rumored headset, which is supposed to do exactly what I've just been talking about, VR and AR, blending the real world with the virtual world. Uh, we've been hearing reports specifically at Bloomberg has reported that this headset is coming out this later this year that it, or later, uh, later in 2023, to clarify there. And that it's going to have uh, 3D immersive versions of FaceTime, Maps and other types of Apple apps.
2: All right, let's talk about something else that's spooky in investors. I'm not going to use the spooky fingers. This is serious. Cryptocurrency. We just had our stock survey where 81 percent of investors say they're not even going to touch it. What do you see for the crypto space going into the new year?
7: I think we're going to continue to see more of some of that spooky stuff, seeing sort of the negative side of things. We talked about in this piece, actually, some of the uh, scams around crypto, Uh, really the idea that this might not be the year anymore where we hear of average people investing in crypto, more people being worried, more people hearing about those scams, more people hearing that their investments have really gone nowhere.
1: Hey, Joanna, it feels like uh, for next year, the most promising or exciting technology, it isn't hardware, it's software. Chat GPT obviously caused a lot of waves uh, here in the Valley and beyond. How do you think that's going to man- manifest itself next year?
7: Yeah, I think next year we go from what these tools have been, are really toys, to tools. The fact that we actually see practical uses of AI in both our personal lives and our professional lives. We're already starting to see companies like Adobe, Microsoft put these types of generative AI tools into their products. I think there's gonna be a lot more of that. I think open AI is the really key one to watch. How are they gonna go from these sort of research projects to actual pieces of technology that we all wanna use?
3: Joanne, I'm so glad that Deirdre asked about that because I feel like all of this generative AI technology has in a lot of ways been the most exciting and surprising thing we've seen this year. I guess the question is, well, we see the excitement there. What happens with social media, especially around TikTok, Twitter? Do we see more innovation out of the likes of Meta? What do you expect?
7: No, Julia, you brought down the conversation. Um, I think, look, it's, the big question is what happens to Twitter next year? I think that's a big, big player there. Does it become the real true town square of the world or does it just get our, our creditors wondering where their, where their money is and our regulators just sort of wondering, hey, what's going on here? So that impacts a lot of the other companies. I think it's a it's really sort of the ball's going to go in Meta's court. What can they do to sort of pick up some of those tw- Twitter users? Is it about building up Instagram, other parts of Facebook? We've seen others go to sort of these third, uh, I would say, open source type of uh, social media networks like Mastodon and others that are up and coming. So will those be bigger? Um, But uh, obviously around TikTok, you brought that one up, too. Lots of scrutiny there on a total opposite thing, which is really the security there and and the China relationship.
3: Yeah. Speaking of, of regulation around these issues, one thing I'm so curious about is whether we will see a surge of concern around privacy. I mean, obviously, we have regulatory issues in this battle between, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram. And, and his parent company Meta and Apple over the targeting of ads. But you've talked about a lot of technologies like earphones that are gathering data about you or in-home devices that are talking to each other. Will there be a moment that comes at any point, let alone in the next year, where American consumers are like, geez, I don't feel safe from a privacy
7: standpoint? I, well, I think that point has happened, right? If you look at some of the data, pr- actual users are concerned about privacy. The big question comes back to regulators. Are we ever going to see a national privacy national privacy regulation? That's been happening at the state level. More and more states, California, Maryland, they keep doing more along the states for protections. But will we see that at a national level? I think the question around the hardware, um, there is going to be some big movement in the smart home space. Uh, what's coming is something called Matter. This is able to let all of the, the Apples and the Googles and the Amazons, all of their smart home products work better together. Um, there are some strict privacy settings in that that not, don't allow the, the sharing of data. But, of course, each of those companies do want to gather data to make their products better, but also, of course, serve you more of what they want you to buy.
1: Joanne, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, Typically for the holidays, for Christmas or Hanukkah, I like gadgets. I didn't get a single one this year because there wasn't really one that I wanted. I wonder, you were the queen. So did you get any that you think are really going to play a big part of your life next year? I
7: mean, no, I bought uh, my kids are too young, really, but I like I, I bought them an iPad, if that's a thing, and a, an Amazon Kindle Fire tablet. So I wouldn't say those are the most exciting tablets, but that's sort of been the story of gadgets for the last couple of years, right? Commodity type of devices, things people need: smartphones, tablets. I did just mention smart home. I'm very excited about that. I did move into a new house in 2022, and I did buy a bunch of smart home stuff. I did buy myself light switches. Is that a uh-huh. present to myself, I guess? Um, dear John, I can buy you some light switches if you'd like that. I, but I looking got those. Ahead, I think-
1: I, that was like a few years ago, Joanna, the smart light switches for your tree and stuff. But I, I mean like in yeah. AirPods, right? Those, those were kind of life-changing. I haven't really seen and, a product like and, that for a while.
7: And I don't think it's going to come this year, right? I do not think the headset, the, the, the VR AR headset that we were all wondering if Apple's going to release and these others from Meta, it has not gone mainstream. And it's funny, always around the, the holidays, you see the Quest rise up in sales. You also see the mm-hmm. app rise up in the App Store, but are people continuing to use that throughout the year? And so I think it's all eyes on Apple to prove to us what's the mainstream use of AR and VR.
2: Yeah, Joanna, you know, I got one of those. I almost never use it, but I'm not gonna make this about me. Before we let you go, of course we got to talk about Apple. And the Apple and regulation, a lot of people talking about that shift to the USB-C. Is the government going to step in and do something about that as they have as governments in other places have as well?
7: Yeah, I think this year 2023 is the year of the iPhone RE, the regulation edition, and this is because the EU is forcing Apple's hand on a number of issues. The one being the big one that you just mentioned USB-C that is by 2024 the EU is requiring most gadgets to have that common port so that is that USB-C port and so i think that this year we will see apple move to that port they have already said publicly they will comply with that law so Everyone will freak out about this port change, but I I think it's a good thing. We can talk more about it in 2023. I I look forward to it. The other piece of regulation that could impact the phone is another piece of uh, uh, legislation out of the EU about competition. And will that impact Apple's app store policies? Will they allow third party app stores? The Journal and others have reported that Apple is looking at putting on third party app stores onto the phone. But we won't know until we hear from Apple.
2: Well, Joanna, great to see you. My prediction is that with me and you, Spooky Fingers is going to be a new thing. We're going to be doing the Spooky Fingers. Thanks for your predictions for 2023. Before we go, let's take a look back at the tech that we lost in 2022. Gosh, I just tearing up just a little bit guys just over the yeah. iPod though just over the rest of them I barely yeah. even were aware they of they still I, make I, I iPods? Knew
3: I mean, the iPods I mean iPods
7: really? <laughs>
3: they all meant
2: so much
7: to me I, I mean I could say so many nice things about all of them.
2: <laughs> really the Stadia what, what would you say? Um, well, not that one, but um,
7: I would say, you know, <laughs> cloud gaming, cloud gaming is still a thing and will be a thing. It just won't be Google's thing. What will be yeah, on next yeah, year? Probably...
1: That's the question. Yeah. Twitter?
2: Mm, maybe.
0: Maybe. I know. Um, that would, would be will...
2: sad. I don't know. I don't know. It, All right. I, pod, I will sad. miss you. You were like my senior prom. Day. It was a very special time, but it's over. All right, Joanna, thank you for being here. We really appreciate having you here.
7: Great to be here. Happy New Year,
3: everybody. Love those predictions. I missed the snap pixie. I thought that was a really, really cool one. And a quick programming note before we head to break. Don't miss CNBC's special at 6 p.m. tonight, Taking Stock 2023, The Economy, covering the outlook for markets, Fed policy, and more in the new year. We'll be back in a moment. It's time for a Closing the Gap look at the progress that women in business achieved in 2022. The headline, there hasn't been that much progress. There is a bit of a piece of good news though, and it's this, after the pandemic pulled women out of the workforce in record numbers, this year women made up more than half the jobs added every single month except for January. They comprised 56% 56% of the 4.3 million jobs that were added over the course of this year. And when it comes to the CEOs of the largest companies, women are still vastly underrepresented. There are currently 38 female CEOs at the S&P 500. That's up from 33 in January. But when it comes to wealth, there was even less progress. The number of women on the Forbes 400 wealth list increased by just two women over the year to 58 women in total. And this year, the gender pay gap remained flat. Women on average continue to earn 83 cents for every dollar that white men earn and female founders actually have less access to capital than they did last year. Pitchbook reports that through November, female founders raised 2% of venture capital dollars in the U.S. That's down from the 2.4% that they drew in 2021 and an average of about 3% over the prior decade. Now, despite these persistent gender gaps, there is increasing awareness of the statistical outperformance of the women who do become CEOs. An ETF that tracks U.S. publicly traded companies with a female CEO is launching on January 9th from Hypatia Capital. Its Hypatia Women's CEO Index was down 13% this year compared to a nearly 18% decline of its benchmark, the Wilshire Small Cap Index. Dear really I'm important. Back
1: over to you. Yeah. Really important stats there, Julia. And you know what's a good read if you're interested in this? When Women Lead by Julia Borson. If you <laughs> haven't got it yet, you should very soon. We'll be right back after this quick break.
7: Lock in your membership now. Join Jim Kramer and the CNBC Investing Club with the special year end discount. Go to cnbc.com
2: slash club new year or scan this code to sign up.
1: Regulatory news to mention this morning: Tim Wu, a major player in the troika, Lena Khan, and Jonathan Cantor being the other two behind President Biden's big antitrust push. He is leaving the White House and the National Economic Council effective this coming Wednesday, citing personal reasons after just a 22-month tenure. Lena Khan at the FTC, Jonathan Cantor at the Justice Department, they will be left to take up the charge in reigning in the monopoly power of big tech. Tech check is back after a quick break. 2022 has been a wake-up call for the crypto industry, as you probably know by now. After Bitcoin reached an all-time high in November of 2021, the crypto winter came and we simply never thought out. Major tokens, including Ether, Ripple, Solana, they've also tumbled this year, and smaller meme tokens have collapsed altogether. 2022 also saw the departure of many crypto moguls. Since August, we've seen CEO departures from Kraken's Jesse Powell to Celsius's Alex Masinski to MicroStrategy's Michael Saylor. They've stepped down, and the latter's firm. Finally, sold their first Bitcoin holding this week. Of course, all of this has culminated in the collapse of FTX and the arrest of CEO Sam Bankman Fried, who faces criminal charges and up to 115 years in prison. The industry hasn't entirely collapsed, though, guys. The world's second largest crypto, the world's largest, excuse me, crypto exchange, Binance. It is still in business, though questions are swirling and some of the biggest stable coins like Tether have been able to stay tethered to the dollar despite a few hiccups. If the FTC and CFTC do crack down, what does the future look like for the industry as a whole? Um, guys, it has been such a wild year. There's been crypto winters before, but we've never seen crypto really capture the mainstream like it did this year and then crash so spectacularly. Yeah, such a dramatic um, end to the year with this FTX implosion.
3: And, you know, it's been fascinating just to talk about it with both of you this week off air. And one thing that, Frank, I know we're very curious and uh, curious about is this question of whether retail retail investors, consumers are going to want to stay away from crypto more than ever because of the whole scandal around FTX and whether they sort of take that as a sign that they should just stay away anything uh, from anything crypto related.
2: You know, I mean, it's looking more and more like that regulation might be the best thing for the crypto industry. I mean, when you look at regulation did for banking. Obviously, I'm going back 100 years to the Great Depression. But once people knew the deposits were safe, they felt more comfortable putting their money yeah. back in the bank. And I think it's a very similar situation with cryptocurrency. Now, obviously, it can't be covered by the FDIC that it ensures all of our bank accounts at a traditional bank. But there certainly has to be something else that the CFTC yeah. can do. Or someone else can do to make it so if you put your money in a Binance, if you put your money in a Coinbase or in this case an FTX, you know you can at least get that back.
1: Well, or you just take out the exchanges altogether, right? As some Bitcoin evangelists would argue, just keep it in cold storage, um, which is maybe what we see in the year ahead. As we mentioned, Sam Bankman-Fried is expected to enter a plea next week in, in New York courthouse. Two of his former associates, Alameda CEO Caroline Ellison and former FTX CTO Gary Wang have already pleaded guilty and agreed to work with prosecutors. Bankman Fried is being charged with multiple charges of wire fraud and conspiracy. And if he is convicted, he could face more than 100 years in prison. And joining us now with what he expects next week, former federal prosecutor Renato Mariotti. Renato, <laughs> given all of that, what exactly does Sam Bankman fried have to offer here in any kind of plea deal?
6: Not a lot. And that's the problem for Mr. Bankman-Fried at this point. Uh, The uh, feds already have two, as you mentioned, two of his closest associates agreeing to cooperate against him. As a practical matter, um, they have him dead to rights. They feel very confident about their case. So he's going to have to do essentially uh, what uh, prosecutors call try to uh, cooperate downward or flip downward, cooperate against people who are less culpable than him people who are his, you know, associates, people he did business with, people who invested. Um, That's possible. Uh, He certainly could get some credit, but he's going to get a lot less credit uh, than, for example, Caroline Ellison uh, got because she was cooperating up against him. So I expect him to, to serve a substantial prison sentence, really no matter what he does, unless through some sort of miracle he's able to beat all of these charges, which I think is highly unlikely.
3: Yeah, that does seem highly unlikely. Just looking at all the data, but I'm curious, looking at the situation, what other shoes you think are left to drop? I mean, we just saw the Winklevoss twins and Gemini slapped with a potential class action lawsuit earlier this week. Do you think we'll see more lawsuits come as part of the, the sort of the, the dam that broke as a result of this?
6: Absolutely. So first of all, everyone who's done business With FTX has to get a lawyer and figure out their own potential liability, their own responsibilities to if they're, for example, a publicly traded company or they have their own um, investors or customers. They have to be concerned about that. Uh, You can imagine lenders and those who extended credit uh, to FTX uh, are going to be potentially considering suits. Uh, So there's going to be a whole slew of lawsuits that are going to be kind of reverberating out from the FTX debacle. And then, as I think your, your, uh, your, you, your guest mentioned a moment ago, uh, there's going to be a regulatory response here. I actually think, yes, there are some in the industry who want more regulation. I think that is uh, likely whether it is invited or not. There's definitely um, increasing regulatory interest in the crypto space.
2: Hey, Renato, I have a question about restitution for the people that were negatively impacted by all of this. When Sam bankman Free was down in a, a very tony villa in the Bahamas, he claimed that he wanted to help out all the people and, and do what he could to get people back their money. Is there something that he can do? And can prosecutors actually enable him to, I guess, help the government re- get back some of this money?
6: You know, it's amazing. Uh, Fraudsters always have d- at the end, they always want everyone to get their money back, uh, but they usually spend a good portion of it. And so there's not 100 percent of that money remaining, which is how they got themselves into this mess. Uh, I, there will be a. A restitution order entered if and when he is convicted that will require him to pay 100% restitution to everyone but as a practical matter it's hard for me to see how he possibly has uh, the ability to get 100% of the funds to everyone who's been impacted here now you can expect there to be some exploration of clawbacks Uh, in other words people who got money from FTX shortly before it collapsed you could see some argument Uh, That there might be some, for example, ill-gotten gains that they uh, that they have. You could also expect, as we talked about a moment ago, some collateral lawsuits. But I do think that there's going to be some former customers and investors of FTX are going to be left holding the bag.
1: Maria, looking back at Sam Bankman-Fried's, um, let's call it a media tour, right after everything sort of collapsed. He was on Twitter Spaces, it felt like, every day or multiple times a day. He was giving a ton of interviews, he, all with the sort of intention to say that what he did was unintentional. Um, does that hurt him now as he heads to court?
6: Yeah, I have to, I have to say, if you were trying to think, what is the absolute dumbest thing I could do if I am under federal criminal investigation? It is to go on Twitter Spaces every day for hours and give recorded interviews answering very difficult, hard-hitting questions from everybody possible. I-, I listened to some of these Twitter Spaces and I was amazed at the questions that he was answering. I was incredibly <laughs> foolish. Uh, he's totally boxed in. Uh, if I was representing a client like him, uh, yes. I would basically um, tell him that, it, as a practical matter, uh, he has no room to to go in his testimony because he's yes. essentially locked himself in uh, by all of
1: his prior statements. Well, he admitted that he was not following his lawyer's advice. Uh, Mario, thanks so much for being with us for Insights. We'll talk to you again soon. Happy Holidays. Thank you. And if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow
3: and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Tech is back in a moment.
6: Megan. 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 Me turn
0: it's
1: insane, right? PG-13. So why are we showing you a trailer for the new horror movie Megan coming out soon? It's not just to scare you. It's a universal property from our parent company. Also, you might have caught it. Our own Julia Borston making an appearance. Trading Tech Check for Tech Talk. Rather horrifying actually, Julia. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but it looks scary. But it's about an AI robot. Look, we've talked
3: to so many executives, such as Elon Musk, who are very scared about the negative implications of what happens if AI takes over. So maybe this is, Frank, just a big uh, AI robot scare.
2: Here's my prediction. You're going to be this generation's Courtney Cox. Remember, she was the news reporter in the yeah. Scream franchise. When the Megan franchise go. kicks off, that's you.
1: <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. That'll do it for Tech Jack in 22. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.